and welcome to the Evelyn Partners Investment Podcast. I'm Cherry Reynard. With me today is Daniel Kasali, Chief Investment Strategist. We're going to be discussing a turbulent period in UK politics and whether investors can look forward to a better second half of the year. Before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or a recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Welcome, Daniel. Um, It's been an interesting week in British politics with the resignation of the Prime Minister. Um, The pound is up a little, the 10-year gilt yield is down a little, and equities are pretty much flat. Um, Do you think this is likely to shift the dial for UK assets in the longer term? In short, yes. At first glance, the resignation of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister on the 7th of July appears to have a little impact on UK financial asset prices. But the long-term drag on UK relative equity performance from the country's relationship with the EU may have been reduced. To understand why, it's worth going back to how UK stocks fared since the recovery from the global financial crisis in 2009. From that point until the middle of 2014, UK stocks performed roughly in line with non-UK global equities. However, the emergence of UKIP under Nigel Farage that eventually pressured then Prime Minister David Cameron to seek a referendum on the country's relationship with the EU. This started to weigh down on UK equity market performance. Boris Johnson helped to lead the campaign to win a Brexit vote in June 2016. Apart from the uncertainty caused by Brexit vote itself, British politics also stumbled from one market risk to another in the aftermath of the referendum vote. This included the rise of Jeremy Corbyn and the associated risk of a hard left agenda in number 10, to the political paralysis under Theresa May government. Aside from the unfavourable politics, UK stocks also underperformed due to their heavy value-related bias to raw materials, a style that fared badly compared to growth-centric tech stocks during the later years of the 2010s. To put that in some perspective, from its peak in 2014 to a trough in October 2020, UK stocks underperformed global stocks by an incredible 50%. Now, if we fast forward to today, there are probably fewer political and market risks for international-focused UK stocks from Brexit. First, there are concerns over Northern Ireland Protocol uh, as part of the withdrawal agreement. The UK did secure a quota and tariff-free relationship with the EU in December 20. Not only did this reduce the risk of a potential hard Brexit, where trade barriers could be introduced with the continent, but it also brought closure to some investors from the outcome of the 2016 referendum vote. Second, UK investor returns have been boosted by sterling weakness since the Brexit vote. So a sterling-denominated diversified portfolio benefits by lifting the returns foreign currency-denominated financial assets when they're translated back to a depreciated sterling. Moreover, international-focused UK companies, they can boost overseas profits when they're repatriated back into sterling. Third, UK external deficit with the EU has narrowed over the last six years. In the first quarter of 2022, 
the one-year trailing current account deficit with the EU now to minus 3.5% of GDP versus a record of minus 5.9% in the third quarter of 2016. Although it is difficult to disentangle the specific distortion from Brexit, COVID and rising imported fuel costs, much of the external deficit improvement can be traced back to lower imports. The bottom line is that the UK economy appears less vulnerable to volatile international capital flows to fund its trade deficit. And I wonder if this is kind of outrageous optimism, but would it be too early to suggest that it may usher in a more stable period in British politics with a more kind of business-friendly environment, and that in turn might kind of encourage global investors to look again at UK assets? Well, it's difficult to say when we still don't know who the Prime Minister is. Uh, But as one of the key orchestrators of Brexit, Boris Johnson can now be expected to retire from frontline politics and head to the back benches. A new prime minister could even jettison the hard Brexit ideology seen over the past decade or even seek reproachment with the EU. For investors, Brexit risk has arguably gone full circle to one of less importance for future UK stock performance. Since the deal with the EU on Christmas Eve 2020, uh, MSCI UK has actually outperformed uh, MSCI all country world excluding the UK by more than 10% in sterling terms. And and what's that done to the relative valuations of UK assets? I mean, do they still look cheap relative to... They certainly do. I mean, the UK still trades at a hefty discount to global peers. And just to get some perspective of that, if we look at a blend of three different UK valuations, so price to book, price to earnings and price to dividends, and compare it to the world ex-UK, we can see that the UK is now trading at a 38% discount to the global market, which is an historically low level. So on balance, we think there is room for the UK to outperform in a post-Brexit world. And looking to the rest of the world, uh, the US 10-year bond yield has dipped from around sort of 3.5% to about 3% in recent weeks. Uh, does that suggest that financial markets now expect interest rate rises to moderate? And do you kind of agree with that? To some extent, yes. The Fed futures market, which prices in what investors think US short-term interest rates are going to be, they have a very tight correlation uh, with US 10-year Treasury bond yields. The Fed futures interest rate in two years' time has actually fallen to 2.8% from a peak of 3.5% on the middle of June. This has dragged down US Treasury yields. Essentially, speculators in the money markets and bond markets do not believe that the Fed can raise interest rates as high as they would like. And what's prompted that change of heart? I mean, have there been more encouraging signs on inflation? There hasn't really been encouraging signs of inflation. Uh, However, given we have seen tighter monetary policy and the hit to final demand from a rising cost of living, speculators and the Fed need to contend with slowing economic growth. For instance, if we look at US job openings, they're falling now for two consecutive months. We can see that small business confidence has fallen to its lowest level since 2013, and the interest rate sensitive US housing sector is heading south. Outside of the US, there are also fears uh, that Russia could cut off gas supplies to Europe, and global manufacturers face lower orders as consumers spend more on services over goods. These growth concerns are being priced into lower bond yields and the US dollar has surged to a 20-year high against major currencies. And this reflects general uh, investor risk aversion. And there have, I mean, some key commodity prices have dropped in recent weeks. 
I mean, are you reading anything into that? Could that, could that last? Well, it depends which commodity prices you're looking at. For instance, copper and aluminium prices are both down more than 20% in US dollar terms so far this year. However, Brent crude oil price is up more than 30%. Base metal prices have fallen due to concerns about global growth and slowing demand as consumers switch to spending more money on services than goods. Energy and food prices are supported by a supply squeeze and geopolitical issues related to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Considering that energy is by far the biggest commodity used globally, overall commodity prices, including base metals, food and energy, they're still rising this year. Given that there has been significant underinvestment in fossil fuels from the climate change agenda, and sanctions against Russia that restrict energy supply, it'd be reasonable to expect energy prices to hold up and keep overall commodity prices up. Um, let's, let's take a quick look at stock markets now. I mean, the one thing that kind of stood out for me was uh, emerging markets, which have been a sort of surprise winner over the quarter to June, or at least, you know, have lost less. Um, and that feels like a, a time when the odds were really stacked against them, you know, high dollar and all that kind of stuff. I mean, how do you explain their recent strength? And do you think that can continue? Uh, well, the performance of emerging markets can really be ascribed to increasing policy easing coming from China. It appears that Beijing is pivoting away from the exceptionally tight policy in 2021 and cutting interest rates with the aim of stimulating the economy in 2022. In a marked contrast to a year ago, when both regulation and credit was tightened, recent Politburo meetings focused on supporting growth. This message has already filtered down to other government entities. So we've seen that Chinese regulators have stepped up stimulus for the important property sector uh, by expanding the bank's mortgage availability and also cutting interest rates for the first time in two years. This easing policy in the second largest economy should offset uh, the US shift to raising interest rates and help sustain the global business cycle. This is already visible in China's so-called total social finance compared to a year ago. Uh, the data up till June shows a clear upswing in its form of credit. The most important thing to note is that China's credit cycle tends to lead uh, to positive outperformance for emerging Asian equities relative to developed markets. And then finally, it's, I think everyone involved in markets at the moment is feeling pretty bruised after a tough few months, you know, with bond and equity markets have seen significant volatility and there've been very few places to hide. I mean, do you see a better second half of the year or have we just got to live with this volatility? Well, given all these headaches, it can be difficult to remain positive on the stocks after the sell-off in the first half of the year and also into July. Nevertheless, we still three, see three reasons to stay the course and remain invested. First, uh, there are signs that inflation could peak soon. Unlike inflation of the 1970s, the US dollar has risen in value compared to other currencies. That should lower the cost of imports, uh, keeping prices down. And job vacancies, which have started to drop, uh, this should reduce pressure on wages and therefore inflation. Now, provided inflation peaks, central banks will be more inclined to dial back their aggressive tone, particularly if real interest rates uh, continue to turn more positive and acts as a break on the overall economy. Second, global GDP growth remains relatively robust and company earnings continue to be supported by high profit margins. In contrast to the monetary and fiscal tightening implemented in advanced economies, Chinese policymakers are pumping more uh, money into the economy and cutting interest rates to drive growth. Against this backdrop, uh, company earnings globally uh, are forecast to uh, at least grow in positive terms. Third, valuations look reasonable, as much of the post-pandemic froth has now gone. Global stocks trade on a PE ratio of 14 times, which is 
broadly in line with the long-term average, and it's certainly down from 20 times, which you saw towards the end of 2020. So in summary, equities appear in a good position to recover from current levels, but this assumes that inflation peaks soon uh, and companies continue to generate relatively healthy earnings and uh, trade on more attractive valuations. The main risk for investors is whether inflation remains high and leads to a more protracted hangover. And is, is there any sort of one factor that's likely to be particularly important in bringing stability to markets? Yes, I think the key thing to monitor is coming uh, from key central bankers uh, like Fed Chair Jay Powell. If Jay Powell tones down some of the hawkish tone, which would be likely if inflation does indeed, does indeed start to slow, it would give a base for equities to recover. Great. Well, let's cross fingers. <laughs> thank you so much, Daniel, for that roundup. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. All references and links spoken about in this episode can be found in the episode show notes. And you can find lots of other investment articles on evelyn.com, including what does political turmoil mean for UK markets? Please do subscribe to our show if you haven't done so. And you can rate and review us in the App Store. Until next time.